and certainly by the time I was 16, I had uh, was heavy into booze and drugs. I was numbing, as I didn't know at the time. I thought I was seeking a good high. Thanks for choosing to spend time listening to amazing stories from great Canadians on the Northern Sentinels podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ayotte. On this episode, I visit the Ottawa Mission to speak with their CEO, Peter Tilley. Born into a military family, Peter and his siblings moved around until a tragic accident settled him in Ottawa. After high school, he graduated from Algonquin College and worked in several industries before a professional reset. He left his life as an executive to drive for the Ottawa Food Bank. He progressed from doing deliveries to the executive director of the food bank. During his time at the food bank is when he decided to deal with his addiction to alcohol. Clean and sober, fit and healthy, Peter has been the CEO of the Ottawa Mission for over a decade. He and his team serve the Ottawa community in a variety of ways that not only provide essential services and dignity to our citizens, but help support social stability. Before we get to the podcast, this is the first episode where the NSP is supporting veteran charities and small businesses with free advertising. This is a way to support veterans throughout the year. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Maple Leaf Lyrics. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve G. from Maple Leaf Lyrics. Maple Leaf Lyrics is a veteran-owned music-creating and publishing entity that offers a variety of music services. You can book live shows, request an original song for a special event in your life, or record your own music in a supportive studio environment on the shores of the beautiful Lake Ontario. I believe every story has a song. You can find all my published music nested on YouTube on the Maple Leaf Lyrics channel. If you're looking to create original music, contact Steve at MapleLeafLyrics at gmail.com, where whatever you're trying to say, you can sing what you mean. Thanks for listening to the NSP, and now my conversation with Peter Tilly. Peter, uh, thanks so much for hosting the podcast down here at the Ottawa Mission. Uh, it's fantastic, and uh, and I really appreciate your time because I know you're busy, and you're certainly really busy this time of year. We just bumped into uh, uh, some folks here who are dropping off some turkeys. What are they? What's that relationship? Yeah, we're down here at the Mission, Chris, so there may be some background noise now and then, and yeah. it could be a truck backing up. It could be somebody who's passing by my office, which is the, the ground floor, who's troubled and banging on the window without knowing what's happening inside. Or it could be, in this case, we had a group from Abel, our pest control people, a big contractor here at the Mission, who uh, give back every December. And in this case, they dropped off 25 turkeys, a whole bunch of uh, large 25-pound uh, bags of potatoes and carrots and all the stuffings and mixings on the side that are going to go into our Christmas dinner on Sunday. And this is their annual give back and tradition here. So how great of them to do that when you consider the price of turkeys today. Donations are down on that front for us. So right. that, this is a good shot in the arm. Yeah, it's it's probably something that most people don't think about in terms of the the things that are impacting their daily lives are also impacting charities uh, and other not-for-profits that are trying to do to do good work. So it's it's, a, it's an important message that, that people, I think, uh, need to be aware of. Yeah, it, when you look at our food 
purchases budget of just under $2 million a year and throw 15% on top of that. That wasn't budgeted for. It's a big part of our operations because it's essential services, but also the job training program that is Chef Rick's is a social enterprise, a catering service. And uh, how, when do we move and up our prices when part of what we do is make things affordable for those who use our our services. So it's it's tough uh, here for all those who line up for the free meals. We've got 30 to 40 people a night now in our waiting area hoping to get a mat down on the floor and then a bed. Uh, we've seen a demand for our services like never before here. And, and, and a lot of charities use that term, but I'm telling you like never before here because of the refugee asylum seeker crisis that's overflowing most city centers and people are on the streets as a result. So uh, those people who are 35 to 40 a night waiting in our waiting area in plastic chairs or sleeping on the floor, hoping they can get a mat down within six or seven days it's taking now, Chris. It's unbelievable. Well, they have to be fed three or four times a day as well, too. So right. add that to our the two-edged sword is not only increased demand uh, with the number of meals, the increased need, but the cost of those meals. So we're, we're feeling it from all sides here. That's a, that's a great primer. And I know when we sat down previously, I mean, I, uh, I got a great education from you on this. So we'll, uh, the back half of the podcast, we'll, we'll dig into the, the mission and, and I think provide some great education for, for listeners on, uh, on what the team does here and why it's so important. But let's start with you because that's really, mm. I mean, as, as we've talked about, I mean, this is about service. And I think that what you and the team do down here is an incredible service to uh, the community and uh, in the country. So, so you, um, Peter Tilly, where are your, where are your folks from? Your, where's your, let's start with your, your mom. What's your mom's family background? So my mother came over from uh, Wembley, England, uh, in, in that area, in, uh, in the inner core of London area. And she uh, served as a WAF, I believe it's called, in the uh, British Air Force. At the, my parents are both post-Second World War children. They grew up during the bombings of London. My dad's 92. We took him out for his birthday recently for fish and chips, of course. He <laughs> of wanted course. good fish and chips. <laughs> uh, my sister and I took him out recently. My mom's now in a home. She's still alive at 94, uh, but she's in a home for her dementia. Very hard on my father, who's still got all his wits about him. But um, she came over uh, with him, followed him over here because my dad was a poor painter by trade. Uh, he used to bike with the can of paint and his equipment on his bicycle as it was done in England in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. And after five years as a painter, he happened to get a call one day to go to the Canadian Fort, to the uh, Air Force Base, the RAF. And there were some flyboys from Canada there who said the RCAF is recruiting. And he filled out the paperwork and boom, he was here nine months later. Uh, took a ship over as it was done then and got off in the harbor in Montreal, ended up to in North Bay, and my mother followed him over here. So uh, he packed a suitcase and had a storage box, and that's what he came over with, and the rest is history. Uh, uh, he served in the armed forces his entire career. Did your parents ever share with you their experiences during the, the Blitz? Absolutely. Um it's it's tragic uh, to hear of the stories, but 
uh, how we take things for granted in this country because until 9-11, war didn't happen on our soil in Canada or the USA. And it was just a, a wake-up call that this is what it's like to have your cities bombed. And in my parents' case, uh, my father shared several stories that how both of them have shared the blackouts, how you all had thick drapes yeah. and you absolutely had to blackout your place to live in terror as you heard the German uh, aircraft flying over and then the bombs being dropped and you'd hope because of the blackout they weren't quite hitting the city as well as they could be. But my father remembers running down to the bomb shelters as everybody did then. My mother tells the story of somebody who sat with his back to a window and a bomb went off nearby and his whole back was singed through a th with a third degree burns in that. And he had to be hospitalized uh, and treated right there. My father's story is that how they came out of the bomb shelter and the house next door to theirs was leveled. Apparently a bomb had gone right down through the roof and uh, and uh, disintegrated the house. Yet their house was untouched, basically, but uh, the other house beside them was just blown apart. And, you know, again, but for the grace of God, it could have been us and our family and, and dealing with the shock of that. And he also tells the story of a, uh, a plane returning a Lancaster that had been wounded uh, in its mission, uh, it was a, a, a made no. It wasn't a Lancaster. It was whatever the American bombers were then. The Liberators, possibly. Yeah. And he remembers it flying really low and smoking as it came into land. And unfortunately, it didn't make it. It crashed in the field, and the crew of nine uh, or whatever was the crew on on that plane all died in that crash. He was a kid, so he would have been eight or nine years old, and he remembers running through the field uh, uh, to the damaged plane. And, and he says to this day, he still has horror of the smell of human flesh burning and that. And those are the realities of war as a kid growing up in a country that was being bombed. And uh, and uh, par probably part of what led him to want to serve here in Canada with the armed forces all those years. So they, we lived as kids through the Cold War. And all of us who are of that generation, I'm 63, of any day now we're going to war with Russia. Any day now we're going to war with Russia. And that fear of the Cold War until finally we agreed, let's not annihilate each other and let's, uh, let's just accept we may not go to war. Yeah. It's, I think it's great that your, your parents shared those sort of genuine stories because my, my exposure was my grandparents. So um, it's, it's interesting you talk about the, the bomber command because my grandfather was a wireless and air gunner on, uh, on Lancaster's. Wow. And, uh, but then my two grandmothers were in London and my other grandfather was in London as well. And, and I found that they, um, they weren't necessarily great at sharing. And when they did, it was a little bit of that. Uh, and I don't know if it's, if it's a genuine stiff upper lip where you just, they just sort of said, well, this is life and we're just going to deal with it. But I, I can't imagine how it doesn't impact you. I mean, how did you find that your, your parents had a level of resiliency as a result of, of being young and dealing with that? Absolutely. And stiff upper lip is the best way to describe our family as, as we grew up, 
uh, in those Air Force families, words uh, and from England, uh, words like uh, "I love you" weren't used. Something I, my daughter and I just have that connection always with, and I made right. sure of that. And so have the siblings, and that. But you didn't talk about those things when somebody close to the family died. It was okay, move on, uh, because I guess they had seen so much, and that. My grandfather served. Uh, as a Royal Marine in the First World War, he got in at 17 and fought overseas, uh, lived. Uh, but things that make me appreciative, Chris, I thought about it the other day. I, I, uh, I follow war history in some of the battles, especially the Second World War, as an interest, uh, the Vietnam War. And um, when I think that my grandfather now in his 40s served as an MP, uh, that that was his call of duty then was you're too old really to go fight so you'll be an MP but he went overseas and it could have been the retreat of Dunkirk but he was captured by the Germans and he spent three and a half years in a German prison camp maybe because of really? his age they didn't shoot him but we do know the stories of uh, prisoners that were just mowed down and executed rather than being brought to a prison camp the horrors of war and I, I, I reflected on that with that American uh, uh, group that was uh, machine gunned uh, uh, well known incident towards the end of the second world war and I just thought I'm fortunate he wasn't or I wouldn't be here so um, right but again they never talked about it he never talked about it my father says he never talked about his war experience he just used to wake up in the middle of the night screaming and uh, he was British, so there was no swearing. And, it, well, I guess their <laughs> version of swearing, you buggers, you buggers, he would say. And those were his nightmares about uh, what was being done to him in the prison camp. The, almost the entirety of my family is, uh, is is British, whether it be England, Scotland, Wales. But, uh, yeah, I can't say I've ever ever heard any of my grandparents say a foul word in their in their lives. But... Bugger was certainly one that was yeah. <laughs> was commonly used. Uh, so your 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 uh, your parents ended up in North Bay. So was the, that was the first posting with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Yes, it was. Yeah, and uh, my father, we took a trip there. Um, uh, we brought him back to North Bay, and my mother just at the start of the pandemic, people couldn't go anywhere or vacation, and. Uh, I said, uh, let's go visit North Bay. So we went on a drive and he showed me the house uh, I was basically raised in when up until I was two. They moved to Uplands Air Base when I was two. Okay. My brother was five and my older sister was eight. The younger sister hadn't been born yet. So uh, he showed me the hangar where he used to work. And when he started out as a private, uh, you know, my father eventually rose to the, through the ranks to a master warrant officer and was in charge of a uh, section of uh, he his painter trade. He became an airplane refinisher, and that was his job to uh, paint uh, the airplanes that went up. Uh, and with that resilient airplane paint, which I still remember one day, uh, you get priv perks back then. And I remember when he took in that Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme and painted it with a beautiful airplane paint refinish <laughs> and said, and I'll never come off that baby. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I can imagine that that's pr it's probably if it's still on the road or wherever it's <laughs> sitting right now the paint's probably looks like a million bucks still. Yeah. No doubt. Um we we talked a lot as well about your uh your time in Germany as a kid. Can you maybe give the listener a bit of a sense of when you moved to Germany and and some of the you know the the important family events that happened there? Yeah, so we uh 
we uh, grew up outside. Um, it was interesting that it took about a year and a half, two years to get a spot on the base in the PMQs. So we grew up in two smaller German towns, Oberndorf and Gruffern, and uh, had to assimilate to German society. My brother and I uh, and, and older sister was then back in Canada going to university, I believe. But um, we we did acclimatize to, we were the only Canadian family in Oberndorf and uh, eventually in Greffern, we were one of three Canadian families in that town. So we got to integrate with the German population, see what it was like to grow up in a German town and uh, eventually moved on to the base and got to see what it was like to be there. But Germany was great. Everybody wanted to be posted to Germany for the experience. And uh, we were on four-wing Baden-Solingen. And uh, it was a good experience as a kid growing up. But certainly, you're like an isolated group. There's no Canadian TV. Mm-hmm. There's uh, no uh, no Canadian language everywhere. And, and you really are an isolated society onto, your safe when you, onto yourself when you're living on a base in a foreign country, it was a unique experience. Yeah, for the listeners who don't uh, don't know, uh, there was a point at which Canada had two bases in Germany. Um, one was primarily Air Force, and one was primarily Army. Uh, so we had a you know, a large number of Canadian families that were living in Germany mm-hmm. throughout the the Cold War, and and the Tilly family is one of them. So. I think your brother's injury was probably one of the um, was a pretty important event to the family. So what what happened to, to him uh, during your time in, in in Germany? Yeah, it was certainly one of those life changing moments for the whole family. That um, my brother was just going on sixteen, but as any sixteen year old or some. Um, they were off the base. Him and some friends went on a joyride off the base into the beer tents. And on the way back, uh, he had to hitch a ride with someone else, an older Canadian uh, boy who uh, owned a, a teenager who owned a Volkswagen. And uh, that car wiped out. That's uh, what kids under the influence happens and uh, went off the road and hit a tree. The other two uh, the, in the front seat were okay, but the car had spun around. So that went back end into the tree. And my brother was in the back seat with no seatbelt, of course. So he was paralyzed. Uh, the left side of his brain took a hit. So uh, he was paralyzed down the right-hand side of his body. And uh, I still remember the base commander at the time, the Colonel Arnie Bauer, how my father to this day is so grateful how he intervened in every way he could as a base commander to ensure everything that was necessary for my brother's care was there. He was soon flown home to Ottawa to NDMC where he received excellent medical care for somebody who was paralyzed somewhat down his uh, right side. And uh, they worked on him and got him to walking on a walker and eventually on crutches. It took a few years but eventually uh, he had to learn to write with his left hand uh, and and even when he walked he would drag his right foot behind him uh, whether on crutches or a walker he was mostly in a wheelchair but had a huge impact on the family certainly that's trauma uh, years later as we may discuss I went through my own my own journey into alcoholism and drug use which part of why I ended up here at the mission to give back but uh, certainly that was a challenge as well too so um it was a uh it was a tough experience for us all to have uh, my older brother my hero at age when i was 13 and he was 16 paralyzed in a car accident and as i had to do my own recovery journey i had to learn uh, part of why 
I drank and certainly I was numbing. There was no child psychologist back in those days who's going to come speak to the family and remind the parents, look after the other kids too, not just your disabled right. son. That's not how it was back then. Uh, there would be now those interventions. So how did the family dynamic change then? Did you come back to Ottawa? You mentioned he came. Um, your brother was sent back to uh, National Defense Medical Center, uh, NDMC, here in Ottawa. Did the whole family get repatriated um, and sort of start things yeah. fresh here with, with this new situation? Yeah, the posting in Germany was a godsend and one of those, we don't want to come back to Uplands Air Force Base. And we did come back to Uplands Air Force <laughs> Base. Yeah. So... Uh, so we uh, we had to do that. We had to stay for months. Uh, again, the Air Force was great. Uh, we stayed for months in a motel across from NDMC. And uh, the, the rest of the family, my sister by then was in university. So my younger sister and I and my mother and father stayed in a room in a motel for months so we could be next to my brother and see him daily and eventually uh, moved on to the Uplands Air Force Base and eventually... Uh, he moved in there with us and, uh, you know, he ended up uh, able to go back to school. He ended up with a job as a dispatcher, which suited his disability and uh, had a good career. But uh, certainly the forces were there for us uh, at a time when those services weren't provided by many. Uh, you know, there were very limited services. There was no no rules about accessibility for disabled people and all those things. No, you know? not at all. My father had to build the ramp. He's a handyman and a tradesman, so he built the ramp that went uh, to the back steps that got Stephen up in and out of the house every day. So, I mean, you'll be you'll be pleased to know that um, there's a number of houses at Uplands, ironically enough, uh, that have been uh, as a result of the Afghan War uh, that were redone um, for in a couple of different ways. One, they were redone accessibility-wise. For cupboards in the kitchen and that. I've seen some of the shows, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing they did is that they designated a number of the houses there for families um, who were coming back to be closer to loved ones who were in recovery. Um, so there is a number of houses now here in Ottawa, which is which is great to see. It is great to see, yes. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, le- lessons can be learned and action mm-hmm. can be taken to make things better. That's that's good. Now, sometimes how, it takes a war. Sometimes it does. It yeah. takes a, a shock to the system. And how old were you when Stephen got uh, injured? So I was 13 years old, and uh, he was my hero. He was the bigger of the two brothers. He he was about six feet tall, 175 pounds, and he was the starting pitcher on the. Uh, baseball team uh, for his his cat, his age category. Uh, he was the athlete of the family, and I was so proud to be little Tilly. He would uh, I'd go try and hang around Teen Town, and he'd tell me to get lost, the younger <laughs> brother, as older brothers do, <laughs> and that. And uh, it was tragic when that happened. Uh, my life, in many ways, I lost a piece of my life and, uh, and then had to assume a role I wasn't ready to assume um, – in some ways amongst the two brothers that I would have to look out for him now and uh, take him on walks in his wheelchair and somehow become uh, an older leader of the family in, in many ways uh, as, he, as, we bo- as we had to redefine our arrangement as older brother and younger brother. And to this day, we're that way, uh, you know, still to this day. Uh, we have a wonderful relationship. Uh, we're still very close, even though he's out in B.C., 
Uh, thanks to modern technology, we get to Skype every second day and we have great conversations and I fly out to BC as often as I can. I'm fortunate to have this job where I can afford to, to visit with him and my older sister. She stayed in, uh, she's a forces, uh, career person as well too, Air Force and uh, retired out in beautiful Comox, BC, where everyone wants oh, yeah. to retire. That's the truth. And her and her husband retired out there and Stephen lived with them for a while when my parents could no longer have him there caring uh, for him so uh he's now in a residential uh, home out uh it's called the views because it overlooks the uh, pacific ocean so he's fortunate to be there and we appreciate that but i get out to see him as much as i can how did that role reversal you just talked about from little brother to big brother uh impact you at that age and impact what you what your vision for your, your future was going to be if you had a sense of what you wanted to do after high school. I mean, how did that, how did that change things? Well, I realize in, in hindsight, Chris, the trauma piece of that, I had been through, you know, some trauma in my youth, uh, but that was the big one. And, um, again, there wasn't the counseling at the time. So I found that, um, as much as I should have learned that he was off-site with some friends who were drinking, so that's not good. Instead, by the age of 14, when we arrived back here, and certainly by the time I was 16, I had uh, was heavy into booze and drugs. I was numbing, as I didn't know at the time. I thought I was seeking a good high. And it certainly affected, I was one of the bright kids, my older sister who retired a light colonel and myself, the, our parents had hopes for us. Stephen was big and strong and didn't care for school. And neither did my younger sister. He always said, I don't care. I'll be a mover or something or whatever. I'm going to be a truck driver when I grow up. This is before the accident and that. So. Uh, my parents' high hopes for Peter went out the window as I got into booze and drugs by the time I was 16 and 17, and it began a journey which it took me many, many years to beat. I always figured I'm not a drug addict or an alcoholic as long as I held down a full-time job, and that was one of my goals by the time I was 19 or 20. I dropped out of, I managed to get my grade 12, but barely, because by then the effects uh, of the booze and the drugs and the lifestyle were there. And soon I was uh, partying all the time, uh, nonstop, and uh, and it just became uh, my full-time jobs. Uh, you know, I, I thought, how can I be a drug addict or an alcoholic if I own a Mustang and I own an apartment and uh, I've got a full-time job? Hell, I'm 20 years old and I've got the world, uh, you know, on a string here. I've got everything I could ever want. And... Uh, I didn't. Uh, it would take me years uh, later to beat my own substance uh, abuse, uh, substance use issues. And uh, that's why I'm here uh, at the Ottawa Mission, so now I can help others. Uh, it's part of my journey on giving back. Is uh, the, One of the first things I did when I came here is realize talking with the team, we need to do a better job of addictions, uh, substance use recovery for the homeless. And so now we've moved our addictions program off-site, and we have a great track record with a five-month addictions program called Addiction and Trauma Services because it's unique to the homeless population. So uh, certainly uh, Stephen's injury impacted me and led me down a road. Uh, with it. it could have been a number of other childhood issues. I did grow up in a Air Force family or 
fifties and sixties, booze was pretty prevalent in in that uh, for for the families there. One for the road, uh, you may remember too, was yeah. literally one for the road. Absolutely. I remember my parents, people leaving their place who could hardly stand and being handed highball glasses of scotch. Here, Dick, have one for the road. Thanks. It's <laughs> the way it was. You know, people can who aren't from those generations can look back and say, oh, that's unacceptable or whatever. But that's how it was back then. Uh, people used to smoke in the movies all the time and on airplanes and airplanes. People used to. I love watching the old movies where the first thing you see the movies from the 50s and 40s and 30s as they go to have a business meeting at 11 a.m. in the morning. Every big business person, every successful one has a big, massive bar in their office. Yeah. And can I fix you one? And yeah. and I laugh watching that, saying that would be so, can you imagine business? Can you imagine today here in the 2000s, if somebody came in for a business meeting and the first thing the guy did is, let me fix you a drink. And he had this massive bar in the office. The person there would be thinking, I think this guy's an alcoholic. But that's that's post-war years. Uh, there was a lot of drinking and numbing going on where it was a different time. And you you mentioned uh, about how um, you didn't think that you were uh, you had a problem with drugs or alcohol because you had a car, you had an apartment, you held down a job. So what did you do after high school? What was the your path? So I got a, a great job at the time working graveyard shift bus wash with a bus company and a dispatcher sometimes in the evenings fill in or on the graveyard shift we'd rotate and uh, I was. It was good pay because working a graveyard shift and a bus wash is a great paying job. And, mm. and I just thought, again, I had everything. I had enough money to party and an apartment and a car. And I, who cares about the rest? And it was when I was about 24, a few years into that, that a fellow bus washer of mine, Brian, a guy I went to school with, said, um, I've been accepted into Algonquin College's business program. They have a, uh, it's a college, so they take in mature students. I said, what? And I just had this flash of, wow, Brian's going back to school and he may do something with his life. What the hell am I doing? So I uh, made a decision then then and there that the drugs had to go. Unfortunately, the booze did, and it would in later years. But I just thought, uh, what the hell am I doing? So I uh, straightened out, uh, got accepted into Algonquin College, and uh, went. Uh, I worked graveyard shifts. I still wanted to keep the apartment and the car, but the car soon had to go, and Eventually, my last year, I moved back home with my parents to so I could get good marks to graduate with. And that's what I did. I got my business, three-year business in business management and uh, pursued a career in the hotel industry uh, soon after. And the hotel industry is great. If you work hard uh, or willing to put in the hours and come in when people call in sick and work those shifts, you will get promoted. And I was promoted five times in four years and eventually became the front office manager at a couple of Ottawa's larger downtown hotels. And I uh, was grateful for the chance to turn my life around uh, through a college uh, college uh, degree in business. You just mentioned that you decided that, uh, that drug use was not going to be compatible with, with education. Was it that simple that you just said, I just got, I just have to get rid of this out of my life? And, uh, or was it more of a, a deliberate sort of process or a struggle that, uh, you said, no, this is before I can do this thing with education, I have to fix this part of my life? There's a voice inside you, Chris, that screams out for anybody who suffers from addiction that this is not the way to go. Uh, there's another voice that says, oh, that was a tough day. You deserve this. 
There's a lot of you deserve this that go on through addiction. There's a lot of there's no way out that goes on through addiction. And that's how I counsel and help people now is uh, reminding them that there is a better way. It's what we have to do here. Our, our people are so broken that come into the Ottawa mission. Uh, their addictions, uh, the trauma that's brought them in is so difficult. I had to make a choice that, um, uh, you know, I, I remember hearing uh, somewhere uh, a sh- TV show or something, and it resonated with me that dope is for dopes. And I knew that uh, weed and the other drugs um, uh, just, uh, you're not getting smarter. Even even uppers like cocaine or speed, um at the time you feel on top of the world but you know your brain is getting numbed and you're not so smart when you come out of your fog and uh, I knew that if I was going to have to absorb uh, use my intellect to do well in courses drugs would have to go unfortunately I kept the booze around for many years after that and eventually the booze had to go too because an ad- we have a saying an addict is an addict is an addict God, three months into my sobriety, a guy who was helping me were on the steps about to go into a meeting. It's noon. And he says, are you doing okay? You seem like you're, uh, you're, you're different today. You're like you're really up or something. I said, oh, yeah, I just had a – he says, are, did you drink too much coffee? I said, no, no, I'm drinking Red Bulls. And he said, oh, how many of those have you had? I said, uh, uh, six so far. And he said, you know, those things are like 10 coffees, right? And and he grabbed me by the shoulders. He was a mover, Rick the mover. And he really helped me in the early stages. He said, Peter, I'm going to tell you something. And remember this, an addict is an addict is an addict. If you start smoking cigarettes, you'll be up to two packs a day within a few weeks. If you start taking Red Bull, you'll be up to 12 of those in a, in a few weeks. So chocolate, whatever. Like uh, we we crave, we overindulge, whatever it may be. So get off that shit. And and I did. And uh, I said, okay, I'll stick with two coffees in <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> and that. So uh, I had to learn that I have something in my brain, Chris, that craves. I've seen people come in. Doctors explain this. When I went through recovery, I went through the Royal Ottawa, which is a great recovery program, Meadow Creek. Uh, When I finally kicked the booze, uh, the booze melted me down in my 40s. And uh, I I was an absolute hardened alcoholic by the time I was in my 40s. And when I saw the human brain, uh, they showed the nerve center and how it highlights in flashes of green. And I'm holding up two hands here in front of a you and one is the brain of a normal person, a normie as we call them in, mm-hmm. in addictions, and the brain of an of, a, of an addict. And you can see that after two lines of cocaine, this brain uh, that represents the normal person, my left hand here that I'm holding up, is slightly heightened with the green sensitivity around the center of the brain uh, where the uh, nerve center is. The brain of an addict, on the other hand, after a couple of lines of cocaine, and this was from a study in Harvard, is you just see this huge green flare in that brain. And I know that, and I've also, and it's what keeps me sober to this day. It what keeps, it's what keeps me off booze and drugs. I always figured for me that first drink or two, and they say that with an alcoholic, it's that first drink or, drink or two. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the saying is one drink is too many and a thousand's not enough or however that say, saying goes. Uh, but um, 
For me, it was like that scene out of The Mask with Jim Carrey. And there's a scene where he's becoming addicted to the mask and the power it gives him. And you see that one point where he gets it back and he grabs it and he puts it on over his face. And he suddenly stretches out his arms and his chest and he holds up bold and he looks at the room and he says, Showtime! And that's what uh, a line of cocaine or a shot of good scotch or toke on a joint, anything like that was for this brain that's inside me. And it's like that for many of the people we help here at the Ottawa Mission is that first first shot, whatever it may be, showtime. And now the party begins. And it's not going to end until 3 a.m. and you're, or you're in the back of a cop car or an ambulance or hopefully not a hearse. And uh, that's what we work on here with people. And I know that about myself when people say, aren't you tempted? It's been 15 years since your last drink. Hell no. Black and white. I have to look at it that way. You're in the hospitality industry here in Ottawa. At what point uh, and why did you decide that service was important to you? Because you come from a deep military background. Um, you have you know, siblings that served. Uh, and what, what was the tipping point that you said to yourself, um, you know, service is important to me, or or was that how it worked for you? It's a good question. For the hospitality industry, it was more about um, trying to get ahead in business. But I realized I had a skill to interact with people, uh, probably from my mother's uh, side of the family. My mother um, was always very outgoing. Uh, she was always carried herself well, loved social interaction, loved to be in social settings and a very outgoing personality. My father was a bit more conservative, uh, being military and that, and uh, was a good fit for him and a good balance for me as a child growing up. So that side of me, uh, whether it's uh, inherent or whether it's patterned and learned, um, was, was I, I enjoyed interaction. I enjoyed service mm-hmm. and that. So, uh, so um, it was a good fit, and, and here it would lead to uh, different careers until I, uh, charitable sector. My choice to go to the Ottawa Food Bank, I was working in a corner office in my 30s. I was drinking then and starting to drink heavily in sales. And I just decided then too, without going through recovery, I've had enough of this. I'm going to tone it down or quit for a while. And I did that. And, uh, Joined uh, the Ottawa Food Bank as a driver, and at age 34, I just decided I got a call one day from a recruiter who said to me, uh, Peter, um, um, a guy who had been a client of mine for five years, I went from the hotel industry into the recruitment industry, and in two years as a brand uh, division manager for the industrial division, uh, replacing uh, laborers, uh, construction uh, carpenters, and uh, drivers into jobs. And I got a call from a former boss of mine who is now running the Ottawa Food Bank distribution system. He wasn't the, the ED, but he was the uh, operations manager. And he was looking for a driver, and he told me about the job Monday to Friday, 8 to 4, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, I'll send you in two guys on Monday. So I can't pay your fee or commission. And I uh, showed up myself and said, give me the job. So I took a cut to about a third of the pay I was making. I had to work different odd jobs, but I had enough of the business world at that time, and uh, I wanted to give back. And what better way? There was a faith piece for me too, as 
trying to, I was trying to rediscover my relationship with God and how I could serve God better on this planet, Chris. And I chose then to, uh, to go to the Ottawa food bank as a driver. And yeah, who knew one thing would lead to another. And, uh, a few, about five, six years later, I'd be the executive director of the Ottawa Food Bank. But that was a calling. This now service had a whole new level of serving those who are marginalized and poor and vulnerable. And from the food bank, uh, after 14 years at the helm, I decided five years into sobriety, I wanted to give back more to those who suffer from addictions. And uh, what better way than to come to a homeless shelter and enhance those services for people suffering from mental health or addictions issues. And here I am. Was, was faith always a, an important part of your life or did that something that you found later in life? It was something later in life for certain. I'd always had a belief in a God above and I'd never liked to, they, what destroys our relation, many relationships with God. And we see it with some who come here damaged from religion is religion. Uh, and, and I'd always distinguish differently between my faith with God and, and, uh, religion, which is the filter, how many people discover God. And, uh, I'd always had a belief in a creator, uh, that there was a God above, uh, somebody who hears and answers prayers. And it just seemed at that time I was being directed to, uh, get off the booze for a while as I did. Uh, came back in later years and I'd eventually have to beat it for good. But uh, And I drove for the Ottawa Food Bank, and I loved that job. I considered it a calling. I used to actually deliver to the Ottawa Mission and the Shepherds <laughs> of Good Hope, and that was my run, uh, and uh, and the Salvation Army. That was my piece of what I do. So uh, it was great. I loved it. And who knew where it was going to lead at the time? I was just happy to be out on the road driving and picking up food from the big warehouses and distributors and delivering it to the homeless, to the poor. Was there a was there a person? Was there a moment? I mean, what was the the spark that sort of reintroduced faith into your life as being something important? The woman who would become my wife then and the mother of my uh, daughter, um, she uh, she certainly uh, was a woman of great faith, and uh, and she would say to me when she'd see the stress of those sixty to seventy hour weeks working as a headhunter, uh, working as a recruiter. I was making good money. I was on commission, and I was putting everything into it because I know no other way. And she would say to me, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to serve God and and to give back. And so when the food bank came a-calling, I thought, I think this is it. <laughs> and that, so, yeah, she was a woman of incredible faith. And uh, s- certainly that was a strength for me to... Uh, to, to pursue that new journey. And what was the road like uh, from being a, starting off as a driver, delivering food, delivering food to the mission, delivering food to shepherds, uh, to being the executive director of the food bank? Yeah, it was a great job. I actually would have, except for the fact that I was working two to three when the baby was born and then my wife yeah. had a bit of postpartum depression and couldn't work. Um, suddenly I was working two or three jobs part-time, uh, which I enjoyed, but um, uh, it was a great job. I, I used to uh, say, who could work a better job than this, that I'm going to stops on the road? Yeah, winter driving's tough in any city, but uh, 
Uh, other than that, it was a great job. Uh, I'd listen to the great Peter Zowski uh, in the mornings yeah. and uh, rock and roll in the afternoons and, and, and think, this is great being out on the road. But uh, one thing led to another, and I had an opportunity to take over as operations manager uh, and didn't want that job at first. The ED who offered it to me was surprised when I said, I got a great job as a driver. But yeah, back then jumping from what, 24, 25,000 a year to 35,000 a year. Uh, when I discussed it with my wife, I thought I can give up all those part-time jobs and, uh, focus on the family and, and other, other spiritual pursuits. And I did. And, uh, then served as operations manager for about a year and a half. And, uh, the ED at the time left and um, they offered me that job. And I said, I really don't want it. I saw the stress of what it did to my predecessor and it's a different level. I got out of management for that reason, but I did the job for nine months interimly and the staff were then uh, asking me, please take the job as ED. So I threw my hat in the ring and very fortunately uh, qualified. It was a former... Uh, the consultant they hired was somebody who had been a facilitator to us, a guy who had been, I believe, a brigadier general in the British Armed Forces, a man okay. named Bryn Sharp, who was a uh, squadron leader of the Harrier jump jet jets during the Falkland Island War. So that oh, was his yeah, battle really? experience, an amazing gentleman. And, of course, he had the handlebar mustache to go with the role in the accent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was... Uh, an incredible leader and, and a great facilitator. And so they were on the big search for the new ED. And he spoke to the board one night in camera and he said, can I give you a word of advice? And they said, sure, we all listen to the consultant, especially Bryn with his background and his accent. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you're looking for a leader who has this quality, this quality, this quality, that quality. I said, yes. He said, you've got the guy here serving in the interim role. Give him the job. And so I, I think God bless me. And there was the job to be the executive director of the food bank. And uh, I loved it. It was uh, now I realized I could have an impact on the lives of the homeless, the poor and all those people at a different level. And I could impact the lives of a staff team. And here at the Ottawa Mission, I do that every day. I can be a good employer, uh, a fair employer. We had a uh, woman who came to us through one of our programs um, from Africa. And she uh, uh, recently, um, we have a, an employee wellness fund. And it's more for, for um, you know, making sure we're caring for the employees' health needs of uh, maybe for gym memberships and stuff like that. But we had a employee from, uh, came to us through our Chef Rick's job training program, became a culinary, uh, person, worked in our kitchen, uh, part time, and then became a housekeeper here. And she had a death in her family in Africa and wondered if she could have an advance on her pay of a couple of thousand dollars. That's all she needed to send to her family to, um, help with her aunt's funeral. And uh, when our director of HR came to see me, I said, I can't think of a better use of our employee wellness plan than like you're telling me we're not spending it enough. And we went to the board to create this fund and we better spend the darn thing. Mm -hmm. And that I said, I can't think of a better use of our plan than a poor house, uh, housekeeper having to draw against her pay, take an advance on her pay and pay us back over what three, six months uh, than this. 
So Leslie, Leslie tells me she fell to her knees and burst into tears and thanked her and all that. So if we can do those things, that's when it's fun to be the boss. And you'd know from your military career as a former uh, general that uh, there are times where you get to interact and say, I'm glad I'm the boss and I got that final call. I mean, one of the things you talked about leaving um, your your role in recruitment was the, the pace, the hours. Um, and it sounds like you were hesitant to be the executive director because of those things. So how did you approach it differently um, the second time around, sort of having yep. got to the top of that one profession and then getting to the, the top of this next organization? How, how did you approach it differently? So I knew then that uh, now it was a calling. And I, I, I knew then that uh, everything was focused on the people we were serving. And it, reporting to a board can be tough. You've got uh, 12 different bosses. I now have 15. I have a great board now. We're in harmony. But back then, they weren't. And some, some I've had some years here at the mission where the board wasn't in harmony. And, and there's that reminder of, let's focus on why we're here and the people we're here to serve. But politics gets involved. Board members who... Lost one battle, come back with a heat on for the next battle. Right. And it's like, no, put it behind you. The board voted in this direction and they voted against what you proposed and suck it up and uh, come back to the table for the next board meeting. Some can't. Some are, no, no, I lost that last battle. I'm, uh, the politics get involved, Chris. And it hurts me to see that. So, uh, so other than that, though, it was the calling was the feature that I focused on and helped serve me that we were there to care for the poor. And, um, and, and that always was my focus. And, and also the staff team, uh, the volunteers who came into the organization, but most importantly, always the clients who would use the food bank or the services of the Ottawa mission has always been my focus. I was fortunate to be mentored by uh, Bruce Firestone, the founder of the Ottawa Senators, for a year. He agreed to do that and meet with me. Uh, just a part of my growth when I took over the position at the board, they said, you know, this is a new position for mm-hmm. you, a higher level. Uh, when I took over my position at the food bank, I mean, when that uh, we'd like you to have a mentor and somebody recommended Dr. Bruce Firestone is actually an engineer by trade okay. and uh, taught at Ottawa U business. And uh, he mentored me a couple of times a month. We'd meet twice a month uh, for three hours. And he was great. And I remember him once. I went on a course of his once uh, on advanced business modeling, which was a great course for somebody setting up an organization like the uh, food bank. And he said, are, are you looking for a J-O-B job? Are you in it for a job or are you in it for a career or a calling? Because if you're in it for the former, then you should get out and go find a career or a calling. Because if you're in it for a paycheck, then, then you're in the wrong field. And I always remembered that. I thought, yeah, I'm fortunate I have a career or a calling. And uh, that's I advise anybody who's young and graduating, oh, this will give me a good pension in 15 or 20. You know, if you're going in the military or the civil service, get in there to serve your country as the best damn civil servant that you can. And if you're in a bureaucratic mess and quagmire, then do what it takes to make change. And I'm sure you've seen it all those years in the military. Uh, uh, okay, then be a good soldier, get promoted and make change. And that, and, and same with being in the charitable sector. Are, are you just uh, doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? I, very fortunate, I find most of the people here 
are doing it for the right reasons. Obviously, you wouldn't be here unless you were doing it for the right reasons. And same with the food bank. I'm spoiled. Now, during your time at the food bank is when you, you achieved your sobriety. What was the moment or what was the uh, the thing, the tipping point, I suppose, where you made that decision um, or it, perhaps it stuck? What, what was that, that journey look like? And maybe if you have, I think it's probably some really useful advice because I have no doubt there's lots of people who mm. um, uh, who are struggling with addiction out there to hear your your sort of journey to and achieving your sobriety. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, we have that saying in the program, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I woke up one day with another really bad hangover. It had gotten so bad, I was pouring myself two shots of vodka with orange juice in the morning to start my day. I knew the day that I found the hair of the dog, um, it was a good thing and a bad thing. Because for once the sugar low, the physical peace, uh, by then I was drinking straight booze, vodka, because, oh boy, they won't smell vodka off me. Here I am running the food bank at charity, and I couldn't wait till the whistle blew, so to speak. Uh, but I'd start nipping at lunch hour, and then at the end, the last three and a half months, nipping in the mornings to get me through till lunch hour. And then to get me through till the end of the day, and I'd hit it so hard at the end of the day, drinking alone. An old George Thorgood song, you know, I drink alone. Oh, that's my song. That's cool. Um, And here I was, uh, my wife, uh, my the one who led me into the food bank, a woman of great faith, unfortunately suffered from mental illness and uh, had to be hospitalized. Uh, back then for event, what eventually was diagnosed as schizophrenia. So by age five, and again, that's why I was numbing so hard. That one hit me hard. Why I started hitting the booze hard again. Um, she, uh, she had to be hospitalized. So I was raising my daughter on, uh, by myself from the age of five on. We're very close to this day as a result. But that numbing that I was doing at night and eventually during the days was having an impact. And I could feel the wheels coming off, but I was under the throes of addiction. And until somebody's under the throes of addiction, who other than an addict thinks, my God, at this pace, I'm going to kill myself. Um, I, I can't carry on at this pace. I better double my insurance policy so my daughter will be looked after a 12-year-old hmm. and that. So that was a huge motivation was her. And I just woke up one morning with a bad hangover, and I remembered the wreckage of the day before, what I could remember. I'd shown up drunk at an Ottawa food bank event, slurring my words, and I just felt my staff, the people we serve, but the people in that room that day were in shock that the guy running the food bank was up there drunk in front of the mic. And uh, that was my low point, my rock bottom, that I said, I'm probably going to get fired for this. And I should have been, uh, possibly, uh, or, um, or I've, but I've disgraced myself just one time too many. And, uh, and I don't care anymore whether I'm fired or not. And I didn't. I need to sober up. And, and unfortunately, abstinence was just an unheard of con- uh, for people who suffer from addiction, Chris, so many of them. It's, I've got to get this under control. And that's all they think. I've just got to get it under control. And that's what kept me going for the last two years was, I'll get it under control. I'm Peter. 
I win all my battles. I'll get it under control. No, pff, I was melting down so hard. There was no way out other than sobriety. So I called the AA hotline. A uh, gentleman called me back and uh, began a journey with him that turned around my life as he as as he uh, showed me hope and I've learned that with our people here I'm not going to put you in purgatory we're not going to put you in hell we're not going to give you a miserable existence where you sit around drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes as I thought these people from Alcoholics Anonymous were okay, you know, just yeah. somebody sitting around oh I wish I could drink again oh, I'm smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and the rest of my life I'm going to live in remorse I went to my first AA meeting at his insistence until he could meet with me the next day. Uh, Peter G. was his name, 23 years of sobriety at the time. And I went to a meeting at noon. He found one for me and said, go to this meeting, start the journey now. And there were all these old timers. It was a teetotalers meeting off uh, Alta Vista Drive, a bunch of seniors. You know, I was in my 40s then. And... uh they were laughing and having a hoot and loving life. And most of them are sharing 30, 40 years of sobriety, people in their 70s and 80s. And they just have this zeal for life. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? You should be in hell. You should be in misery. You can't drink again. And I've learned liberated freedom. Take the chains off. So I share that with people that I lived a life where when I took my beautiful daughter, who's 10 or 11, to a movie theater, I'd be checking my watch, cursing the fact that I had to be at a theater with her because I couldn't have a drink there. There wasn't a bar. And that instead of celebrating a beautiful moment being with my daughter, I don't even really care to golf now that I've sobered up. But back then I was into golf because they had beer carts and I could bring booze in my bag. And I realized I wasn't golfing because I enjoyed golf. And I just thought, hey, I've sport outdoors where I can drink and that. And and uh, I would choose golf courses by, no, 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 they, they, they have beer service there. The cart barely comes around. Let's not golf there. What a lifestyle. What a slavery to a, to a, a substance, to booze. And I realized so much of what I was doing was centered around, oh, I have to go to an event tonight. I guess I have to hold off drinking or I'll have a couple of nips before the event. But damn, I'm not going to get to drink till nine tonight. Oh, well. I guess I'll wait. What a horrible existence. What a horrible, and, and that's it. People have to realize that those suffering from addiction, those we see on the street, especially smoking crack pipes, there's no joy happening there. That's slavery to an addiction. That's numbing that's going on. And to break those chains, to break free, to start sucking in clean air, as I do to this day, I see life through a clean set of eyes, through a mind that's uncluttered with the fog of addiction and the smoke and mirrors of addiction. It's a beautiful thing. I drink in this life every single day with gratitude. It's my morning prayers. It's my closing prayers at night uh, that I've been restored. I've been rejuvenated. I've been given this life. And I give back every day to everybody, people I touch, uh, friends, family, whichever. I'm just such a better person. I can be counted on, counted on now. I was becoming somebody who couldn't be counted on, who wasn't good for his word. If you don't have your word, what do you have uh, when you deal with people? And I'm that guy now that I always wanted to be through sobriety. I want to get to how you ended up coming to the mission, but but I will say, uh, I mean, you uh, you look like a fit. You do, certainly do not look your age. Yeah. You look fit. You look healthy. 
I'm just wondering as a bit of a sidebar. So what is your daily, what do you do for your health and your fitness? Because it seems to be working. (laughs) Thank you. I'm 63 and a half. Yes. Uh, My daughter always says, uh, I I love my daughter. She's uh, 28 now and uh, she's going to get her master's in psychology. And we've got a baby on the way, her and her husband, who's a soldier. And uh, she always says to me at times, um, you are, you must be one of the smartest people in the world that I know, because from what you've shared to me about your youth and your teen years, you probably have half your brain left from drugs and alcohol. So you must be a really smart guy because to be existing the way you exist with half a brain, uh, you must be doing pretty well. So yeah, my morning uh, starts with, I, I really look forward if I have an addiction remaining, it's my morning coffee. And uh, I'm single now and, and I wake up in the morning and uh, and uh, start with um, meditation and prayer and uh, just gratitude. I sit there with that cup of coffee in bed and sip that for 10 minutes while I just clear my head from about quarter to six till six. And then, uh, and again, how nice to wake up with a clear head and <laughs> on a damn alarm. Uh, I, wish, I wish I didn't drink so much last night. And, and then I, uh, have morning prayers as a part of, you know, my, what brings me peace. I pray to God, uh, gratitude and, and a wish list as some do on their morning prayers, but minor difference, not for wealth or anything like that, as for health of my family and, and friends who I know are suffering. And, um, and then it's, uh, my morning stretches, yoga stretches, because I've gone through hip and knee injuries that have come back to haunt an old guy my age. It's my daughter who got me into yoga, Chris. And wow, what a gift that was a year and a half it's ago. Great, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So different than the gym. Yeah. And that, but then my routine during the day is this stressful job, but I make sure that good thing about the yoga club I'm in, there's late night classes and I'll pick the tough ones, the so-called power, Hmm. or I'll pick the uh, flow, or sometimes I just feel like the yin, which is hot yoga stretches. That's what I did last night. And it was a beautiful thing. My hip was starting to stiffen up December, November at the Ottawa mission or the food bank. You're not getting to the gym or the yoga as much as you could, but I stick with a Wednesday night when it's 7.30 that I managed to get to last night and I'm feeling great as a result. So it's a gym workout in the summer. I bought a, I, I live uh, uh, by Britannia area. So I, I bought a uh, nice fancy Trek bike uh, at the start of this summer because I was tired of getting passed by people when I'm on my old CCM <laughs> thinking, yeah, okay, big shot, you got a nicer bike than mine. So I had my, got a good tax rebate, went out and bought a nice bike and I biked all summer along the trails. Ottawa's awesome. a beautiful city. What a beautiful city we live in if you're willing to take advantage of it. And again, the gifts of sobriety to be out there on a beautiful summer day for a two and a half, three, four hour bike ride on the trails. It's a beautiful city. And I did that all summer. So I'll miss that in the winter. And now at age 63, uh, I'm about to take up. I've met a woman I date on Wednesday nights and every second weekend she's into cross country skiing. So this old guy who hates winter is, is about to learn to like winter because I'm going <laughs> to apparently get out cross country skiing. So I love that sobriety and my zest for life and, and this appreciation for life and what I breathe in and think with a clear head every day has always got me seeking for new adventures, new change. How did you come to the Ottawa mission? So a recruiter called me. I was running the food bank and uh, headhunted me. 
what an opportunity, uh, uh, an icon, a hero of mine, Diane Morrison, was retiring and they're looking for somebody. I had no idea the size and scope of the organization that I was going from running 25 employees to 150 employees. We're now 200 employees here because of the many services we deliver. It's not a downtown shelter ladling soup and not just the uh, 255 beds and the 3,000 meals a day. It's the health clinic next door. It's a hospice. It's the job training program, the housing department. It's, it's all the other services we do. Tomorrow I'll be going to a graduation program for people who have gone through university level courses, people who were formerly homeless and that we've housed. We offer that ongoing support and all those pieces we do here, the addictions program and the mental health pieces, uh, all those things we do. So um, I learned that and uh, I, I said to the headhunter, no, I'm not interested, but thank you. I love what I'm doing at the food bank. I was five years sober then and uh, have been giving back. I felt I owed it to the food bank and sobriety brought that Ottawa food bank. It was running well before, but this guy with this New Zealand love for life brought it, I think, to one of the most successful branded food banks in the country. We were doing new program initiatives like the Country Harvest Initiative and so many other things. So the food drives were second to none in the city of Ottawa. The Ottawa Food Bank was well recognized. And I was driving in the next day. I was living out in Rockland then and I was driving in uh, the next day after that phone call and I thought, okay, the upcoming calendar, the Scouts Metro Food Drive in November, the Loblaws OC Transport Food Drive in December, and so on and so on. And I thought, I've been doing this for 14 years, the same calendar, the same routine, and it's time for a change. So I called the recruiter back and said, yeah, I'll throw my hat in the ring for that job. They put me through. Uh, it was a tough interview process. I thought they were just going to give the guy who ran the food bank the job, but no way. <laughs> they went from uh, a search firm out of Toronto and we went from 10 candidates down to five, down to two. And finally, I got the job, but I had to fight for that darn thing. I was saying, oh, there's no easy course here. But I knew why. Uh, the board of directors knew they had a beautiful product here. The Ottawa Mission had a strong brand of my predecessor, Diane Morrison's legacy. And uh, they wanted the right person to take on that staff team and care for these homeless people. And uh, I had to fight for it, but I'm glad I did. And I've been here 10 and a half years now. I think we've done some good things. Reputation is so important and yeah. and leadership in being able to maintain and strengthen that reputation and credibility so is is key. You enumerated a number of the, the services here. And I think if I was, as an Ottawa resident, a kid who went to high school here, uh, who took the OC Transpo, the 95 from Orleans, uh, out past, you know, this, this part of downtown uh, more times than I can count, I'm one of the... The, the citizens of this town who thought, well, the mission's a, it's a, it's a, a soup kitchen. Yeah. Like that's what they do. Um, and you sort of run down a number of, of other things, but I think it's, it's probably worth just, uh, making sure that we're, we give the opportunity to say, so what are the various services here, the mission? And then maybe what, uh, are there plans to add other things? Can you add other things? Or And then maybe let's talk about some challenges, because I think that's really important sure. about some of the challenges that the Ottawa Mission faces. Sure, it's good. Thank you. It's um, Sunday. Uh, we will, uh, on Sunday, December 17th, is the annual Christmas dinner for the Ottawa Mission. And uh, the big meals are the Christmas 
uh, Easter Monday and Thanksgiving meals, but we put on uh, close to 3,000 meals a day here. We've got a food truck that's out in the community, which was initially a pandemic response, and that now goes to 35 communities and provides 7,000 meals a week out in the city of Ottawa. We're trying to keep that alive through our donors, and uh, we're trying to get some government support because we are serving the city of Ottawa, aren't we? And and it was a pandemic response when grocery stores and food banks, uh, church basement, community centers were all closed in the initial panic. We realized people were starving in the city of Ottawa. We had somebody donated a food truck and we had the resources uh, through Chef Rick and the job training program and the offsite kitchen. We had the resources to do something. So we did. We said, let's go a little mission drift here uh, beyond the uh, being a food shelter and that we have the beds here uh, uh, that we provide for people every night. Um, we have a hospice above me. We're 21 beds for people who my predecessor, Diane's vision was the hospice, that we could provide a, a place where people who are chronic palliative and dying who had been homeless or are living in rooming houses or in the shelter continuum at uh, the Shepherds or Cornerstone or as the Salvation Army or the Mission, uh, what do you do when you have lung cancer or HIV or a blood-borne disease, uh, cirrhosis of the liver possibly that's got you on death's bed? So people come in here that are from a referral uh, or from the shelter system, uh, these, this 21-bed hospice, one of the first things our team did when I took over was it was 14 beds and we were turning people away and we realized we can't be turning people away. So we expanded uh, on a floor to 21 beds and, and uh, they're given a month or two to live. And um, the minute they're suddenly getting uh, three decent, healthy meals a day, they're getting nursing care. Uh, they're getting their own room, they're getting cleanliness and everything else, medical care. Uh, we've had people here a year and a half, two years, uh, and they live out the best years of their life. Some of them have said uh, the best of their last 20 years, or even if they came from abused homes that led them to homelessness on the streets and eventually to our hospice to die. Uh, we give them the best. So there's the hospice. <coughs> Excuse me. And then uh, the primary care clinic next door, a unique clinic in partnership with Inner City Health in the province that provides primary care for homeless people uh, to see an actual. They wouldn't go in otherwise. They're not going to a family doctor or the civic or the general unless it's an emergency. And um, we we provide the health services like that. We have a job training program. Now we have the Culinary Institute Chef Ricks, where we're graduating 20 to 25 students every four months into a career. 90% of them are graduating into jobs. It's a miracle. And that Chef Ricks vision that we've been able to expand that program from we were graduating 10 to 12 people twice a year into jobs. And uh, we have the employment program. And, and for my pride is that we move the addictions program offsite and it's a five-month intensive 24-7 addictions program for the homeless a group that people say no you can only do so many shelters across north america well we do harm reduction because that's about all you can do with these people and their uh, lifelong addiction bullshit we do an abstinence focused addictions program and many of them graduate into independent living and apartments and jobs 
15 or 20 years on the street or in shelters doing drugs, but ours is called the Addiction and Trauma Services because this program specializes in what mommy and daddy did in those formative years or what trauma you encountered. Were you a guy like me? Did you in some ways lose your older brother in a car accident or lose a family member? Uh, or did you just have a horrible childhood? Uh, was alcoholism rampant in your family and drug addiction? Well, we're going to give you a chance. Let's talk about that trauma. And uh, then let's talk about a way out of that cycle. And ours is a very effective addictions program. We restore hope and a future. And that can lead to job training and other possibilities. And then the mental health piece. We were the first shelter in the city of Ottawa that I know of. And part of our first strategic plan when I was here, instead of sending people away for mental health supports, we put in-house mental health supports. We have two workers in-house working with our people who come in the doors because we meet people where they're at. My director of programs, Joe, was always big on that. Let's meet people where they're at. Um, and that's uh, that's why a shelter works in the face of many who say, oh, there shouldn't be shelters. It's just housing first. I don't see the wraparound supports. Uh, and some people are so damaged, it's not hard to walk in these doors or to stand outside on the street and see people running up and down, walking up and down the street screaming. There was a gentleman this morning when I was out there uh, unloading turkeys with a group that donated and uh, and that uh, just screaming, uh, unfortunately not in a good frame of mind, mental health issues. He's not ready to be in an apartment yet, but maybe after we work with him a bit, he will be with our mental health support. So uh, a lot of good work we do. And uh, that, and on the horizon, answer the other piece of your question. We're going to expand the template for that Chef Rick's job training culinary program. We're starting up a construction trades training program in the spring. So we know there's a shortage of construction trades and superintendent training. So we're going to start that up in the spring. We're starting to plant the seed with donors because that's how we do things. Is not oh we need to ask for the government for a line of support, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. No, we. We will go ahead like we did with Chef Rick's where our donors came to the table. And we think there's enough good, caring Ottawa community members out there who are going to love this trades program and jump on board with it. And uh, it'll be about a three- or four-month training program, but they'll learn rough carpentry, drywall, taping, superintending, and uh, enhanced cleaning, like sterile cleaning, like we have in the clinic and in the hospice. Uh, you know, they'll learn how to hand a burnisher as I had to learn how to handle. They're not as easy as people think, you know, it seems <laughs> kicked to the right. So uh, so we'll do all that. And uh, and we think we're going to get the donors to come on board and support them. We'll start slowly like Chef Rick did with his culinary program, four or five people every three months. But I hope in two years from now, uh, we'll be up to about uh, 20 to 25 graduating every three or four months into jobs. Uh, so that's uh, that's on the horizon for the Ottawa mission. You talked about purpose and hope, and and the other thing that you'd mentioned um, in a, in a previous conversation was the importance of dignity. I think that's so. I think that's so critical. The importance of having a purpose and the importance of um, of dignity. I, I'm, I would find it hard to overstate that. I mean, what role does that dignity piece play in the work that happens here at the mission? It's big. It starts with our frontline staff who are so well trained. They're so far beyond being just enforcers. Um, they're, they're trained in social work and, and a big piece of what they do is, is exactly that piece is the dignity of when we book someone in, uh, it's an intake interview and, uh, 
Uh, we deal with their issues there, and a referral comes to a caseworker right away. We hope to meet with that person who's booked in the next day and start talking about why are you here. And if it's diversion that's needed, why well, you shouldn't be here, how to fight with your parents, you're 22 years old because you were smoking weed in the basement, let's tell your parents, uh, we'll make a call, we'll let them know what generally happens on the progression of people who end up at a homeless shelter. <laughs> do you really want your kid dead on the streets from fentanyl in two years from now? Or do you think maybe you could live with the pot or come to some kind of an agreement? And uh, so there's diversion that happens, let's say for about a third of the cases. And the others, uh, they just need a hand up or uh, a helping hand. Um, some of them, and some of them have severe mental health, the other third, and addiction issues, and uh, that's where we're going to do the work. Uh, and it may take a few months uh, to get them uh, straightened out. But it starts with dignity when they book in. It starts with cleanliness. Uh, as, as you see, this shelter is immaculately clean, and the meals are great. And um, you'll have a clean bed and, and uh, a good meal while we work on the other stuff while you're here. And that's dignity as well, too. And the hope comes that there is a way out of being in a downtown homeless shelter. Whatever happened that's brought you to this point in your life where you're in a downtown homeless shelter in the city of Ottawa, there's a better hope for you if you're willing to do the work that we're going to put before you and hopefully move you on into a better life than the one you've been living for 25, 35, 45 years. Peter, thanks uh, so much for your, your time today. It's great being out of the mission. And I think as people can hear, and you gave a, a great learned sort of uh, a PSA at the start that uh, it's active and there's a lot of things going on. We can see that. So I will pose the last question that I post to all the guests. Uh, if you have any recommendations to the listener that either will uh, educate, entertain, or, or elevate a cause or, or some awareness. Yeah, it's the old, only you can make a difference, and uh, you can make a difference, uh, I say to all people, so don't don't just assume that charity is going to be okay, uh, but, uh, you know, be, be wise in your choices when you make a donation to a charity, and just make sure it's a cause that's close to your heart, uh, but also... Um, don't walk by that person on the street and assume uh, they're passed out, they're okay. Maybe go out and check on them and make sure they are okay. You can got dial 211 or 311 uh, or 911 if, if it's someone in distress. And, um, and, and don't just, uh, again, uh, think that, oh, gee, there's that drug addict, you know, that they're living in harmony, sitting there smoking that crack pipe on, on the side of the street. They're living in hell. And hopefully there's, uh, even a conversation you can have. You've got to be careful. And again, always choose wisely with discernment. But uh, maybe there's a conversation that if you have a background or a past or a family member that you can share and talk with them. So, um, yeah, volunteer is the other one. Don't be afraid to volunteer or come down, help out places like this and get engaged. So uh, that's how we work. That's the engine. Only 22% of what we do is from the government. The other 78 is from the public. Uh, and that's just counting the financial not counting the volunteer time. So get involved, get engaged, and uh, and uh, make this a better community. We can all do that who are in a position to do that. I appreciate you sharing your story today, Peter, and, uh, and being one of our Northern Sentinels. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. You can find information in the show notes on the Ottawa Food Bank, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the Ottawa Mission. Thanks for listening to the Northern Sentinels podcast. And goodbye until next time.